Hello, everyone. Father Ian Van Heusen here. I'm here with Deacon Ralph Pollo and Patrick Ginty, who works for the diocese. You introduced yourself in some last content, so I think people do know who you are a bit. But Deacon Ralph Pollo, you're in town doing some formation stuff. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction for people who are being introduced to you for the first time? Sure. I'm a deacon of the Diocese of Raleigh, ordained in the first class of permanent deacons for the diocese in 2004. And uh, I worked at two parishes here in the diocese, Our Lady of Lourdes and St. Luke's, as a youth minister and then a director of faith formation. And for the last 15 years, I've been living outside the diocese, working in, in an apostle that I established called New Evangelization Ministries. So really... For the last 15 years, I've been a full-time missionary or, more accurately, a full-time evangelist. Great. Yeah. And so the first thing I want to get into a little bit, thanks for that introduction, is, um, is so we're going to be talking about, we, we initially brought you in to talk about manhood. We were trying to do men's formation. And so what we're trying to focus on, um, me, Patrick Ginty, and Rob Agnelli, is doing formation with men and doing formation in the spiritual life. And I think the easiest way to start off with when we're dealing with what it means to be an authentic Catholic man is to just look at men in our lives and good, bad, ugly. What have you, what, what, what are the men in your life? How have they shaped you? And can you just tell some of those stories of what you've seen of Catholic men in your life? Well, the, obviously the first Catholic man that I would see and grow up with uh, would have been my father who was uh, born in the late twenties in Havana, Cuba. And so very different idea of Catholicism than what we have known in recent history, especially in the United States. So um, I, I, he was very much um, the consummate Hispanic macho man who, uh, who really saw his identity as a provider for his family and lived that out and left basically religion and all other aspects of the family to, the, to his wife. And so, um, yeah, faith was not really strong for him. He, uh, it was, he was all about fulfilling that role of provider, and he did it very well. He was a very honest man. Um, so those elements of his private life, I think, we tended to pick up. He always spoke to, to being honest, and, and, uh, and that was a very large, strong fiber within his being that I know that I received. Uh, but faith-wise, I never really got faith from my parents like you know we were cultural hispanic catholics um moved to the states when i was two and a half so really i was a cultural american hispanic catholic um in my so i i was a cradle catholic and and got my sacraments and i left the church i was one of those tradition not traditional but these days it probably is more traditional the the, the kid it gets confirmed and then leaves because it didn't mean anything to me so the next person in my life Strangely enough, really wasn't a Catholic. He was he was a Christian, um, but he was a very strong mentor. He's one of the ones that was very influential in leading me to come back to the Lord and ultimately come back to my faith, a Catholic faith. He was a Christian man working in a in a evangelical outreach to youth ministry, and uh, he was a very strong mentor for me. Strong mentor in discipleship, and and um, really guided me to. To, to draw close to the Lord, draw close close to the Spirit, and do what God tells me to do. And, and of course, God led me back to the church and uh, began to serve and grow there. And from that point on, I would say that there's always been in my life a series of men, um, Christian men or Catholic men, but at first it was Christian men who were, you know, who were people of wisdom, who I saw 
authentically living the faith. And, you know, I wanted to go and, and like it says in um, Sirach, you know, sit at the foot of a wise man. Uh, at, at the beginning of the day, darken his doorstep and be present to him and listen to him all day long, right? Suck from him all you can get. And that's what I would find the Lord was doing. He, he would bring me into a particular person's life, and I saw authenticity, and the Lord led me to, to, to draw close to them, to allow them to mentor me or enter into what, you know, today would be more formally a spiritual direction type of relationship. Uh, but for me, that was more of a casual choice. I, you know what? I'm going to hang out with you because you have something to offer, and I want to glean from you what I can glean from you. Um, and so as I started doing that with Catholic men, you know, of course, it was that, that was at the time of my life where I was really much more focused on my Catholic faith, having come out of some influences of, of Protestantism because of my conversion, uh, back to the church or reversion. Um, and so now I began to say, well, what is it about these men that is so attractive to me? Why is it that I, you know, it, obviously it's, it's that interior relationship with the Lord that, um, that they carry within them but there's, there's a strength there that I think was very attractive to me, an interior spiritual strength that enabled them to, um, uh, to stand, to stand with Christ in a culture that doesn't want men standing with Christ. Well, I think you picked up, it's interesting right now, I think with the moment we're at culturally, very different. You're talking, this is probably mostly the 90s, right, or 80s? Late 80s and 90s, yeah. Late, early 90s. And so at that time, you still had, in the broader culture, we'd say, a, a culture of men being men, mm-hmm. like men being um, more assertive, aggressive. Um, these, these traits weren't viewed with suspicion where you get the, the modern movement of toxic masculinity. And the one thing I, I think, one thing you picked up on that's an important distinction, because I know right now with my generation and younger, we're consuming a lot of Jordan Peterson, and there's a lot of good things about Jordan Peterson, but we have to ne- never forget that he's operating on a natural level. So he's talking about a natural assertiveness, natural um, cultivating natural virtue, if you will. But what you're talking about is you saw, maybe maybe I'm reading in this a little bit, forgive me if I'm wrong, but you, you saw in your dad hardworking discipline, what I'm picking up on, mm-hmm. but not the supernatural life. Correct. So, so th- that was it. So whereas sometimes right now men struggle to even find that strength in a, in a natural figure, but but that's a key distinction for us as Catholic men and for Catholic spirituality is that idea of the supernatural life and the, the quality that the toughness and the discipline is not simply in the eyes of the world. Like, it's not like uh, the Avengers Marvel, like Thor or something in Avengers. I just, he comes to mind as being, you know, like a tough kind of guy image. We're talking a supernatural life, which is Christ-centered and Christ is the archetype. So, I mean, maybe we could draw out that distinction between how the world sees a kind of toughness, discipline, and how we should see it as Christians, Catholics, Christ-centered. Well, first of all, I can really relate and resonate with that identity of being Thor, because I think there's a lot of similarities between he and I. Anyway. um, (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. For a second, I I was like, okay. It's an interesting tangent. Yeah, that yeah. a hobbit would say he's equal to Thor. Okay, so, um, well, yeah, I, I think um, when when we look at identities of masculinity, first of all, we're living in a culture that's emasculating men left and right. 
pick any commercial, pick any television program, sitcom. All of this is at the at the expense of men. And I think, in one sense, uh, men are afraid of their own strength. They're afraid to really tap into that. And and if they really understood that strength given to us by the Lord for reasons, both interiorly and you know, exteriorly for, for the world. I mean, we're hardwired for truth, we're hardwired for strength, and we're built different from women to be protectors, right? And that's a huge identity for us. The world doesn't show us as protectors because the world doesn't want us as protectors. Because if we actually rose up in protection, I, I believe, honestly, that if men really actually stood up in our strength, we wouldn't have abortion. I believe it exists today because the men of the world today allow it to happen. And we've been so beaten down and so silenced. We don't have that opportunity, or we don't make that opportunity, frankly, because we're paying attention to a spirit of fear more than we're paying attention to the spirit of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right? We're, we're accustomed to hearing that voice from our youth so that we, we use that spirit, that voice, as a spirit of counsel. Um, and so why is that so critical for us to be men, you know, who, who are willing to put ourselves out there in strength um, and to become this model of strength for other men in a time when that's frowned upon? Why is that so critical? Is because the culture desperately needs it. The culture desperately needs men to rise up and be the protectors we were created to be. And we can't be that unless we begin to experience the fullness of all that God has to give us. That comes to us from God. He's given us the, the physical parts, right, um, and the ability to develop them on a natural level. But, of course, when we dispose ourselves to the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, then, man, that, now, now we get on a stage of Thor, right? Now we start living, you know, heroic faith, heroic strength. Yeah, as you were talking, you know, and kind of, at the beginning talking about your father as provider you know but and then recognizing i think in this conversation the spiritual dimension as well i was reminded of uh, i was reminded of a moment in my life that i've prayed on actually and a thought has been brought back to me in prayer where my father who was a spiritual man and is a spiritual man and took his faith seriously um there's a moment i remember i was having a really tough time in school and he brought me into his room and he had acquired like you know, some sort of oil, you know, from he was part of a Garcia movement and different things. And he said, you know, I know you're having a really tough time. I'm going to pray over you and I'm going to anoint you, you know, as your father. And I remember sitting there at the beginning thinking, what the heck is this? What is he doing? Like and like this feeling on me of like rejection, you know, yeah. like I can't. Like what? I, I don't want to. I don't want to buy into this. But as he was praying over me, having this overwhelming feeling of like, wow, like this is a big deal. This is important. Like and and again, all these years later, this has been brought back to me in prayer, like as a moment where he exercised his spiritual authority in my life, and God worked through that, mm-hmm. and that I received grace from that. You know, it was it was for me kind of like, and I remember even f- feeling in that moment like a letting go and saying like, "Wow, this is this is important and this is real." Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. And if I can interject one more moment, uh, a few years later when I was in high school, again, you know, just on this theme of receiving from your father something deeper 
I remember walking out of my high school and across the road was a hospital. And my father was out there with a couple other people. You know, they were walking up and down. They had signs in their hands. I'm like, what is going on here? And I walk across the road. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? And he said, well, they're killing babies in this hospital. Hmm. And we're protesting that. Wow. I was like, killing babies? You know, what does that even mean? You know, and I remember all that day walking home thinking about it. What does that even mean? And then we talked later, and he told me about abortion and what was going on and how it was wrong. And so next week when I came out and he was out there again, it was like literally this existential moment where I like, do I go across the road with him or do I keep walking home? And again, just a grace was given to me. I walked across the road and I said, Dad, I want to walk with you. You know, and again, he just like the what he exemplified to me in those moments was, again, it wasn't a worldly masculinity yeah. It was a, I'm going to stand up for what is right, and I'm going to do the right thing, whatever anyone might say. Yeah. You know, just two beautiful things that were given to me wow. that I think exemplify what, it, what I would like to be to my children, to provide them with those moments of grace, you know. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think, you know, piggyback on that, I think one of the things that's really important for a lot of people who are going to be listening to this uh, to hear is, so I right now, because, you know, I'm very aware of what people say on social media. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who would critique this idea of the authority of the father. Like the father has to stand up and have a certain kind of spiritual authority. And I think it's because in our culture, you know, it, it's the classic thing where a false dichotomy. Either you're completely permissive and you're kind of this buffoon or you're this kind of touchy-feely that doesn't assert himself at all. Or you're a complete tyrant and you're, you're the worst what we're, we're really talking about is a sweet spot of authority, which is, um, you know, it's funny uh, connected with this. I remember once I was talking with a young man on social media, and I said, well, you know, in the Desert Fathers, they really emphasize the importance of gentleness. And this actually, when most people hear that, they're very surprised because they think of the Desert Fathers as these intense, rigorous ascetics, which they were. But their whole thing was, was that all of the disciplines, all of the strengths were to soften the heart, not to lead to the hardening of the heart, right? And that's the classic biblical imagery, that the heart is docile. And see, I think one of the things a strong man, a man who is in control of his emotions, uh, not control, who's mastered, I think that's a better word, master his emotions, a man who's spiritually free, a man who's chaste, is more available to his wife and children and is able to know when aggression is needed and when a kind hand is needed, He's, he's controlled that monster within. That's what Jordan Pearson talks a lot about. Yeah. Like he's mastered those impulses in himself, and they, they're for his benefit. They, 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 they assist him in carrying out his role as a protector. So how, how have you seen that balanced out, like that, that, that not being a tyrant but also not being completely absent and permissive? Well, I, I would say two things. One would be that um, when, when we look at the great patriarch, the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the biblical example is given to us that um, the father uses his hands um, to lay them on his son and impart the blessing of Almighty God upon his his offspring, right? And this was a thing that was commonplace, right? So I, I've done several men's retreats where at the end of the retreat is ascending off. I'd have a man... Um, sit down in the chair, they'd make partners sit down in the chair and pray a father's blessing 
on them. As I said, I'm going to teach you how to do this with each other now, and then this is where you need to go home, is that we're supposed to pass on the blessing of God given to us, the anointing of God that is placed upon us is now placed upon the Son, right? And um, that's that whole story with Esau and Jacob, right? The mother comes and says, you know, come put on your brother's clothes, get the anointing from, you know, your blind father who can't see, and that's a whole other story. But you see in that what's what's about to happen. Dad's about to die, and what needs to be imparted is the blessing. So God gives us this amazing anointing of life being spent with him and being blessed by him, and we in turn should be passing that down. In, in the midst of that, you're still, it was a patriarchal society. Whatever you said went, right? Whatever you said went. There was no standing against it. And so in one sense, you see that strength but uh, of someone who's in firm control and in command um, and could, could, through sin, be thwarted and you know, twisted. But when used properly, simply becomes a vehicle, a conduit of the anointing and blessing and grace of God being imparted from father to child. And that's something I encourage fathers to do all the time. And we bless them in a lot of different ways. I know when, for me, for example, when my daughters turned 12, I uh, would take them through a rite of passage. I wrote, sat down and wrote them a typically four-page love letter by hand and told them how much I love them and expounded on all the parts of their lives that I, I, you know, I, that I would die for. And if any of these parts of your life were threatened, I would die for them. And then I said, and I want you to know that when you get older, the age of dating, that I will require that any young man that wants to take you out on a date, they must come and meet with me the day before. And, and uh, they tried to say, well, can't it be the same day, like, you know, 15 minutes before the date? I'm like, no, day before. And I would sit down with that young man, and we would, we would have a little conversation mm-hmm. of expectations. You know, I want you to have a good time, but at no one's expense. Uh, I want you to treat my daughter with respect. You know, and I use these little different antidotes and stories to kind of help the young man see what I was looking for, what I expected. And I, so I think in, in that sense, my daughter might say, well, you know, you're kind of too heavy-handed in having me have to go through this, right? And I was embarrassed because nobody else is doing that. And um, But what I came to find out is my oldest daughter, for example, when she started to date a guy in college, she called me up one day. I was driving here in Raleigh. She's up in Ohio, and she says, there's a guy I'm, get, I'm dating. You remember Russell? I'm like, who? She goes, Dad, you know. Um, Russell. And she says, well, we're going to meet Saturday, and we're going to decide what we're going to do with our relationship. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we're going to decide whether or not we're going to start formally dating. Okay, so why are you calling me? She goes, well, if we start formally dating, then I want you to give him the talk. I'm like, honey, I, I thought you didn't like the talk. And then she goes, uh, she goes, so, Dad, I want him to be like you. I'm, I'm now I'm pulling off the road because I'm, like, you know, starting to tear up. And, <laughs> and uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with each of my new sons, son-in-laws, we've had these kind of conversations before they started dating. And, of course, when they wanted to ask, you know, for my daughter's hand in marriage. And I, I would give them a ring, you know. Um, I'd, so I'd write that love letter, take them out to dinner, read the letter to them, and then give them a ring that went on their wedding ring finger. And I said, I want you to keep this on your ring finger until the day comes that a young man has the courage to ask me to replace it with his own. You know, I, it's funny. I work with I work with college students a lot. And um, I think when, when people think of, like, young men who are promiscuous or they think of young women who are promiscuous, they, they tend to think almost like they have horns popping out of their head. 
Like, they, you just see them, and they're just, like, they got a scowl on their face. So, like, I joke around that, like, evil in the movies is, like, Scar in The Lion King. And what what I've seen with young people is that the, the beauty, the strength and the weakness of young adulthood, like 18 to 25, is that you're kind of, you're unformed in a certain regard. You haven't, you haven't experienced enough to be rigid in your ways, and, and you're very unformed. So one of the beauties of college is they go through dramatic conversions. And so I've seen a lot of kids, and I'm thinking of one particular that I bet you if he was, it was interesting. So I, I sat down. Have you ever read Proverbs 23? The, the, the love poem, like the, the, the perfect wife that the mother gives to her son. Yeah. And it's perfect for college students because it's like, what are you doing? That's how it starts. What are you doing, my son? And you basically pick up on the fact that the king is drinking a lot and sleeping around. And the mom's like, what are you doing? Because like, <laughs> 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 kings can do that and, and, and people will let them do it in a certain regard. So, which is funny, actually, I think the king it's attached to perhaps was in Arabia. It, was, it wasn't in Jerusalem. I don't, it's interesting how it got in the Bible. But anyways, um, so I, I read that to a college student who was very prominent in his fraternity. And he'd been in the fraternity world. And, and um, you know, he had, he had a lot of struggles, but many good qualities. A man who would probably, there's a good chance he'll go on to be a leader in some regard or another. Right, but he had he, very serious character flaws, um, promiscuity, and I read that to him, and it was interesting. He said, "A woman like that wouldn't want me." And, uh, it was like I was like, "Well, don't you want a woman like that?" I mean, when all is said and done, do you really like not like? And so that year, based on that, those conversations, I started the year with that conversation, and when you inspired the men to want that kind of woman, like the kind of guy that would want to date your daughter. Yeah. It's going to be a higher quality. But the interesting thing is, even if they weren't a higher quality before, they'll they rise. <laughs> rise yeah. to the challenge. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Yeah. Once a standard is placed before them and they have a real reason for pursuing it, mm-hmm. they are more than capable of making that. Yeah. And that's the story of the dragon, right? The man has to go off to kill the dragon right. to win the woman. The dragon is himself in a certain regard. Amen. You know. Well, and I think the what from what I'm hearing you know, about what, what you're talking about and your relationship to your daughters and your relationship to your, towards your wife is we frame, like, this authority of manhood within, I think, the, the with within the wrong considerations. Right now, when you talk about th- authority, it's almost like power and privilege, mm-hmm. right? That's what the world is talking about, authority in, within that context. But when we talk about authority as men, what we're really talking about is responsibility mm-hmm. as opposed to exerting your power over someone, you know, or having this privilege over other people, you know. And it's not that. And I, I think that's why Jordan Peterson is so popular. He's speaking about responsibility. And that speaks to men. And it's something that's given to us deep inside of us. You know, I really felt like I was becoming a man, you know, when I got married, but then when I had children as well, and I realized, like, I'm responsible for these people. It's not so much like I get to boss them around and they have to do whatever I tell them to do. It's like, no, like, I'm on the hook for these people. You know, not just that I have to be responsible for them in that that temporal way. Like, yes, I do, but I do have to provide for them, and I do have to give them, you know, a place to live and, and food to eat and put clothes on their back, and I have to 
be good at my job and really work at it so that I can provide for them. But then on that deeper spiritual level as well, like I'm on the hook for their salvation. Like, and that's not a privilege. Mm-hmm. That's a responsibility. It's like, man, I got to get my own life in order. I have to be a man of grace, you know? So it's, it's different than the world looks at it. Like, so man as spiritual authority isn't like, I'm the king and I sit on my throne and everyone does what I say. Yeah. It's like, I've got to be really good for these people. Like there's they a, need me. There's a clear difference between what God sees in authority than what the world does. God God wants man to be to command authority, whereas the world wants to wield power. Yeah. And when the world chooses to wield power, uh, doesn't matter uh, the consequences to the individuals. Where commanding authority takes, as love should the individual's well-being and best result as the primary goal. So that's why as a loving father, I would choose to discipline my child, right? Um, why? Because you're exhibiting a behavior that is not acceptable and certainly would not be acceptable in a world. But, you know, you mentioned this thing about taking responsibility, but there's so many young men today that grow, are growing up in homes, and I've seen this over the last 30 years, that are growing up in homes where they're not, giving, they're not given any responsibility and not held account. Make your bed. Get up every day, make your bed. Get up every day and pick up your room, right? You know, whereas most days, um, I'm tired of fighting you, so I'm just going to close your door, and your room is a train wreck, and... Um, you know, and then I'm just going to fight you for leaving the living room. For but me. here's the thing, though. You say, I'm going to fight you. That's That sounds like the thought trap of the mom, right? Yep. Because they never fight the dad, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean we That's were talking true. about this. Like like his wife, you, you were telling, your wife gets frustrated because she'll tell the kids to do things over and over again. But as soon as you step in as a dad pretty quickly, it's like there, there's something about it. I mean, I think there's, yeah. Yeah, and there is. I mean, it's obvious, like. The way God has made us, uh, you know, we relate to our children in a different way than our wives do. So in a sense, it's like, yeah, we it does fall to us to say, you have to do this and you have to do that. And they kind of listen to us, you know, and but I like that distinction. It's like, yes, we do have a presence to our children that is more kind of like authoritative and is and stronger. Be. Right. There's a strength there, even on a temporal level. Right. Yeah. But I like the distinction you made of like. It's not for any just arbitrary reason, right? It's that when we exert our authority, whether it's temporally or spiritually, it's for the good of the person. And it's and that's a lot more difficult than I'm just going to do this no matter what. Right. Like, I'm just saying this because that's how I feel and I have this power over you. It's like there's a discernment that goes on when you exert your authority. I really like that. It's like... Yeah. I'm going to do this thing, but it's because I feel like it's the best possible thing for you. And that's that's not tyranny, mm-hmm. you know, and that's almost how people see authority is like you can yeah. just be tyrannical. Yeah. Going, and going back, I, I have a I had an idea with your, your daughter, what she probably experienced at college. Where'd she go to college? You don't have to say it too much if you don't want it. That's OK. Franciscan. Franciscan. University of but even like Franciscan. Right. Everybody would assume all the kids there are perfect, which, of course, is not the case. Of course, not the case, right? So, but I imagine her experience as a freshman is so. If you come from a well-formed household, and like you had a good relationship with your father, I think more so your father than your mother. Mm-hmm. 
what she probably saw in her freshman year was everybody starts to date, everybody starts to get in these relationships, and she probably saw that her friends, especially her girlfriends, were they would pick the worst guys, or they would fall into this like where they they just couldn't see something. Because I see that with young women, like a certain it can be a certain um, naivety sometimes, like everything's just going to work out great, and they put themselves in these situations and they get profoundly wounded and hurt. And she's probably sitting there thinking to herself, why can't you see how bad of an idea this is? And then she realized, and maybe a light bulb went off, it's because of my parents. You know, it's because of my my background. Like, that's what why I see this so clearly. Because my understanding of normal is that when I see the smooth talker or I see the different patterns of problematic behavior, like, I know, oh, yeah, that's, that's probably a little bit cautious. But I see that with a lot of our college students particularly with the girls and with the guys. I think with the guys, um, actually guys fall for bad women too. And that's part of, I think the, the guys fall for bad women. And and um, and I will say this, I've worked, I mean, I don't want to be too critical, but I've worked with women and men who are like probably the kinds of people you would not want your children to date um, because of their brokenness and mm-hmm. things like that. And, um, you know, and the thing with that is, um, like I said, it doesn't have horny horns. Like, they're, they're people you could enjoy their conversation. You can enjoy being with them. And I speak somebody as myself. I was a bad person in college and high school. I was like, I was definitely the guy you would not want your daughter to date in high school and college. I was a bad person in many ways. And I realized at the time I was very pleasant to talk with. People enjoyed my company. But the reality is... Like I said, you, you, evil doesn't have pointy horns, and you're doing your, your kids a favor by these boundaries and taking this authority, things like that. I'd be curious your guys' thoughts on that. I kind of rambled a little bit there. No, I think that's, that's great, and that's really something that we're lacking is that we don't see uh, intentional f- formation. I, you know, I would, I would make it a point to take my daughters on dates, and on a date I would open up their car door and I would pull out their chair, and, and show them how I expect them to be treated. And then when we're out with the family, my daughters would watch me pull out my wife's chair and all and open up her car door. They would see me do that because I want because the truth is kids grow up and follow the model. Right? So what is the model that we're putting before them and what are the things that we're intentionally giving to my daughter? So Sarah, again, going back to her again. When this young man comes to you, sweetheart, and he knocks at the door and, you know, goes to take you to the school dance, um, here's what I want you to do, and I'm going to be watching. When he comes, he's going to come knock to the door, going to do all the greeting, he's going to act really nice and, you know, top, top, top behavior. You're going to go to the door, and I want you to go to the passenger side door, and I want you to stop, and I don't want you to touch that handle. He's going to go around to the driver's side, and he's going to open up the door, and he's going to get in the car. And then he's going to see that he's going to look across and go, she's not getting in. And he's going to go, get in. And that's, this is the place where it's going to be really challenging for you. You're going to lean to the window and you're going to go, if you want me to get into the car, you need to get out and open up this door. I love it. And he's going to, he's going to not turn towards his door like, what the, you know, get out, come out, act really nice, open the door, you get in, sit down, door closes, I can't believe this, gets in, he's going to take you maybe to dinner because you're going to dance first. When you get to the restaurant, he's going to get out and he's going to go to the door of the restaurant. I don't want you to touch that doorknob. 
You wait in their car, and that kid's going to look back, and he's going to come back out the door. He's going to look at the car and see you sitting in the car. He'll know what to do. Come back around, get your car door. Sorry. And I told her this, and this is my point. is, says, however you believe yourself to be is what you're going to be treated. Yeah. If you're a brand-new Porsche worth $85,000, and you put a sign on that car says free, just pull, haul it away, Someone will come and haul it away, right? And so if you don't value yourself and see yourself as who you really are, a daughter of the king, then you will not be treated that way. I said, you need to raise your... And so I would place expectations on them. And, of course, they're like, Dad, I can't, I can't. i got to touch the car door. Come on. Don't you dare. <laughs> do not. And, and to I'm, be fair, and I mean a little bit, I mean not that every Catholic family has to do this. No. Like it's like written in stone. But the principle is, what, I'd say the underlying principle that you're getting at very well, very creatively, is good women, when they find good men, oftentimes there's a test that happens. Amen. It's, it's, it's the classic archetype like I was referring to before. Like you have to go off, you have to kill the dragon. David had to go kill all the Philistines and get their foreskins. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> it's recommend a, that. Yeah. There's, there's a mutual calling on to be in your best. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I think what you're getting at too is... And I, I would say this, as speaking as somebody who was a bad guy, like in, in high school and college, I think I would have enjoyed the challenge trying to win the heart of somebody like that. Amen. Like I would have respected yeah. somebody like that more, even though in many ways I was a bad person. Sure. You know? Yeah. Like, it, well, you buy into the lies of the world and say, well, yeah. she's meant to be conquered. Can I conquer her? And exactly. all of a sudden you're like, wow. Yeah. There's also a modeling that you had. Like, so you said you took your daughters out on dates and you showed them how a man should act. Um, I like that modeling. I was also thinking of a modeling of like, I know that when I show some affection towards my wife, you know, or I, I just I'm cognizant of my children are always looking to see how my wife and I relate to each other. And there's 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 a formation that's happening there with them as well. Amen. You know, so it's like when I, you know, kiss my wife or or I come home from work and, and I give her a hug, you know, and don't let go, you know, and then my kids look. And then they all try and pile on, you know, like, and they'll even say family hug, family hug, you know, and like you have the whole group there. It's like uh, kids need to see that. And men, I, I know, I don't think I do that enough, you know, but uh, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Like, how can we form our children, you know, just by being good, like just by showing them a good relationship? Oh, well, that's, that's key because I, one of the things you do see in college, like my daughters would come back and, and uh, my second daughter, Rachel, would say, Dad, I, I, I never understood the kind of family we really had until I started hearing the stories of what kind of families my friends at school at college are coming from, the brokenness, the woundedness that's taking place. And, of course, God's nowhere a part of the equation, and people are just on survival mode. Um, so So... We didn't even, I mean, we were just living with Jesus. You know, we, he's the center of our family. We wanted him the center of our family. He's the center of our marriage. Um, and so we wanted, and I love, you know, Rachel would say, you know, I'd never known a time in my life when Jesus wasn't present at home, which is a great testimony for a Catholic to have, right, that we would actually bring Jesus home to live there. And I'm not saying we were perfect. Believe me, we weren't. But there was, like, we, bar- we rarely fought, 
And when we did, like I, you know, as we were talking yesterday, I'm like, we wanted peace to rule in our house. So, you know, if I messed up, which I would once in a while, I'd go to that person and I'd ask him to forgive me. You know, there's those three words in marriage and in family that are the toughest words to say is, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And I love you. You know, when we get hurt, those go by the wayside. Pride kicks in and self-protection kicks in. And next thing you know, you're living out just protecting your own wounds and brokenness. And again, you lose sight of what's the best for the person. Right, that love constantly demands that we that we do is that the love of God is not self-centered, not self-fulfilling. Uh, it is other-centered. It's you know how do I help you achieve what God desires for you and what's best for you? And so, you know, it's it's again, what are the models of humility? What are the models of dying to self? What are the models of reconciling and seeking peace and not uh, not allowing there to be a sense of peace? I, in my house, as I got older, I had to grow into it my, myself because we're all in that journey. But I, rem- I remember one, one time, and it was the pivotal change in our family where we really wanted to pursue peace to reign in our family. And, and my uh, youngest daughters were fighting. And at this point in my age and the family, I was like, it's 10 o'clock, I want to go to bed. And I am in bed, but I'm hearing them in the hallway fighting outside the bathroom door. And it's not like, come on, let me in. I want to brush my teeth. It's they were saying mean, vindictive things to each other. I got out of bed. I, I confronted the two of them in the hall outside, upstairs, you know, of the bathroom. And I said, sit down right now. And I said, no one's going to bed until we reconcile what's going on here. And so nobody would talk. Finally, we started having some conversation. 12.30, we're starting to move towards reconciling. 1 o'clock in the morning, we finally have tears and the booger snots start flowing. <laughs> and then we have hugs. And then peace is restored. But I lost three hours of sleep and on a night that I didn't want to lose three hours of sleep. you know. And so that's the part of fatherhood, I think, in leadership where you know, love your wife and family like Christ loves the church, which means that he has to die for the church. I had to die for three hours to bring reconciliation back into my home so that my daughters would go to bed that night, not in anger, not in with thoughts and feelings of revenge, but with feelings of peace and forgiveness. And we don't train our families to do that. 